Hey everyone and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode we're going to be diving into episodes 358 through 360, which will cover manga chapters 463 through 465. These numbers are getting harder and harder to say for some reason. Um, as we get the one-on-one fights going with Sanji and Usopp taking their matchups with Absalom and Perona respectively, let's see how they both fare in these three episodes. So, synopsis. Sanji finds his way to the church to rescue Nami from Absalom and his tricky invisible devil fruit powers, while Usopp has to dig deep within himself to see past Perona's devil fruit abilities and find the confidence to take on Perona, but he ends up finding his confidence from an unlikely hero. Alrighty, so differences. There are only a few of them, but probably the biggest one in terms of uh, censoring in the anime compared to the manga is in the manga when Absalom stabs Sanji in the back, you can actually see the tip of the sword or the dagger come out of Sanji's chest. And it's pretty brutal, actually. Uh, and there's obviously there's a lot of blood in are in the manga, but in the anime, this the tip of the sword is edited out, and so only the the knife or dagger or whatever is going in through Sanji's back. He's still bleeding for sure, but it's definitely not quite as graphic as it's shown in the manga. And yeah, I can kind of understand why they edited this. This definitely is a little much for it for TV, possibly even by anime standards, so it's understandable that they censored this a little bit. And it really doesn't take anything away from the scene, so it's not a big deal. The The next thing is the scene with Luffy actually hitting Moria. In the manga, this happens all within a complete scene with the rest of the Moria and Luffy encounter prior to Sanji arriving at the chapel. But in the anime, this last moment is saved till after the Sanji fight for whatever reason. And in fact, you're going to see... In the next, like, I don't know, six to nine episodes or so, all of sort of Luffy's encounter with Moria is, like, broken up into little, little tiny chunks as well as, like, filler material added in, kind of just dispersed all the way through. I don't really know why they did this because it it really breaks up sort of the the flow of all three of the fights. And for some reason... It, it's really distracting, to be honest. Like, I wish they had just gone with the manga in terms of doing all of Moria and Luffy's setup first in one big section and then letting all the rest of the, the one-on-one fights play out. But for some reason, the anime, for I guess for timing purposes, so that some of the episodes end in the right spots, they intersperse Luffy's moments with Moria throughout the episodes, which is annoying, but I can understand why they did it. I guess. And then finally, there are some added extra scenes in the anime for when Usopp is being chased by Kamashi while he's chasing Perona through the, the corridor of all the columns and stuff like that. That's obviously, again, meant to sort of pad out time so that they can time sort of the cliffhangers for each episode. But yeah, that's pretty much all the chal- or changes that they've made. All right, so let's get into the episodes themselves. So these episodes start with our first real interaction with Moria and Luffy, and immediately we learn quite a few interesting things about Moria's ability and Moria himself. The first thing we learn is that by defeating Moria or even killing him, it won't return all the shadows because Moria only controls the shadows, but the shadows themselves are their own thing, which already puts an interesting wrench in Luffy's plan and adds a layer of obstacles to this fight. Because now Luffy just can't punch his way to the solution like he always does. But he's got to somehow make Moria submit 
enough for him to willingly order the shadows to go back. And yeah, this creates an interesting challenge for Luffy that does make this fight a bit more interesting as it adds a new twist we've yet to see for Luffy to overcome. And secondly, to further reinforce Moria's philosophy of having all his subordinates do everything, even when it's just him, he's still got a shadow clone. And yes, that means Moria can use Kagebunshin. <laughs> just kidding. But yeah, he calls it the Doppelman, which obviously comes from Doppelganger. But one more interesting tidbit that I alluded to in prior episodes is Moria's past and how he seems to keep hammering home the point that he was a lot like Luffy when he was younger, but that he failed his crew. And this event scared him so much that he now wants to create subordinates strong enough where he no longer has to even lift a finger to become the Pirate King. However, this encounter shows that as unthreatening as Moria seems and acts, he is still not to be underestimated as he's still a shibukai and, and is one for a reason as Luffy can't land a hit on him as of yet. Before we linger on this for too long, we see what is going on with Usopp and Perona as he's being chased by the wild zombies. Now this scene is completely filler, but I have to point out a couple fun things about this scene. First is how Perona calls Usopp Negapana or Mr. Negative Nose. This wordplay makes much more sense in Japanese as most people call Usopp Nagapana or Long Nose. And so the word for long in J Japanese is Nagai or sometimes shortened to Naga. And so for something that's long, you just add that Naga prefix. However, Naga sounds a lot like Nega, which is short for negative, obviously. So Perona just starts calling him Negapana. And, <laughs> and yeah, I found that very funny. And next, I do like all the clever ways Usopp uses his lies and tricks to defeat the wild zombies to just thin them out a little bit. And again, these aren't in the manga, but I feel like the anime does a pretty good job of this. And then we finally get back on track with the manga material when Perona starts to run into the room with all the columns. Of course, this part is a little exaggerated with his Scooby-Doo-esque chase scene around the columns and in between them, which, which was a funny homage. I, I think that was intentionally done. And yeah, again, this is sort of added, like I mentioned in the differences section. Back with the other fight, Sanji finally arrives to save Nami. And before we move on, I want to mention how much I like Sanji's outfit here with the dark blue shirt and the white tie. It's very simple, but very aesthetically pleasing. What I don't really like is Sanji's sort of corny antics surrounding being very taken with Nami's beauty in the wedding dress. I did like the one where he's so entranced that he's not even listening to Absalom as he's threatening Sanji, but I feel like this joke just goes too far. Like, one or two is fine, but Oda just keeps milking this one. And this isn't even the anime. This is Oda. This is how it actually is in the manga as well. So this is all Oda. And yeah, I, I don't know. This joke does, doesn't really land with me. Absalom is also completely underestimating Sanji because his shadow was deemed too weak to be put into a general zombie, which I don't even know how they evaluate shadows. And my guess is that maybe because Sanji is the only one among the crew without a bounty that's actually known to them, since his poster looks nothing like him, they figured he was weak because I doubt they have a way of sensing or measuring the strength of a shadow, aside from maybe Moria himself. And as we saw back on the sunny, Sanji is fired up and is pissed about what he did to Robin and Nami. He immediately launches into Volshot and the entire combo that he uses on Mr. Two. 
But what I don't understand here is both in the anime and the manga, they, de- de- they depict the Volshot as a multi-hit rapid-fire kicking attack when it's always just been one powerful lunging kick. Obviously, this is some sort of a variant because when he uses it both on Bonkre and Jabura, it's just one kick similarly in many of the video games. That's also how it's depicted as well. So I thought that was very strange that Oda decided to make the Volshot a rapid-fire kick this time around, but didn't opt to call it something slightly different or something. But yeah, I mean, that's just a weird observation I had. I don't know. (laughs) One thing is clear, though. Absalom is seriously no match for Sanji, even with his Skiskin of Meat Fruit powers, especially considering not only Sanji is extra pissed from the treatment of the ladies of the Straw Hat crew, but also (laughs) a ridiculous dream being stolen by Absalom as well. Sanji quickly sees through Absalom's tricks of having invisible bazookas strapped to his arm. And I like that little attention to detail with Sanji's character that Oda goes to the trouble of showing Sanji taking care to deflect even that tiny pebble that's about to hit Nami so that nothing touches her. I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, Sanji sees through all of his tricks because he strangely knows everything about Absalom's Ske no Meat powers or the clear, clear fruit in English. Ske is short for sukere or skete, meaning being see-through or transparent in Japanese or clear, I guess you can say. Uh, He goes on to say that as a kid, he read in a devil fruit encyclopedia about this one fruit that he was interested in and would even give up the ability to swim for that being the skeske fruit, all for the sole gross purpose of basically being able to turn invisible and spy on women in women's bath, which is pretty bad for Sanji. I mean, I know there's that trope of teenage boys fantasizing about peeking into a girl's locker room in many high school comedies, and Sanji is technically still 19 at this point and still a teenager, but it's still kind of bad that this is associated with Sanji's character. Especially since One Piece is aimed at a predominantly preteen to teenage boys audience. So I don't know what kind of message this really sends. I mean, it is played up for laughs and it's depicted as being kind of bad, but it's still problematic, I feel like. And yeah, I mean, to be fair, it is used as a character flaw and he does go on to address this, albeit much, much later on in the story. But it still kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth when it comes to Sanji, at least at this point in the story. Also on a completely separate note, this moment also seems to introduce a really minor continuity error. And and I mentioned this in the spoiler section way back when during the Baratie arc. But I want to talk about it here for those that didn't listen to that back then. So all the way back in the Baratie arc, after Luffy beats Don Krieg, and he's sinking to the ocean, wrapped up in all the the iron uh, net. Sanji doesn't seem to know that Devil Fruit users can't swim. And he has to be told by Zeph, to which he gets angry and yells at him, Why didn't you say so sooner? And then jumps in to save Luffy. However, here we learn that Sanji clearly knew that Devil Fruit users can't swim ever since he was a kid. So why did he forget that? I don't... You know, it's I don't really know how you can explain this other than that it's just one of those things that's a minor continuity error. A rare one at that for Oda up to this point, I feel like, but still a continuity error nonetheless that I even I can't do any mental gymnastics to sort of explain away. This one's definitely just a mistake. But ultimately, I don't really care. It's It doesn't really hurt the story or confuse anything. So getting back to the main story after my continuity rant... Even though Sanji is clearly stronger than Absalom, even with the animal enhancements, 
Sanji puts himself at a disadvantage by having to carry Nami around so Absalom doesn't run off with her and turns her invisible. He then takes a pretty brutal stab wound but ultimately finishes Absalom off pretty easily with an enhanced version of an older move called the Extra Hash. Um, honestly, this fight was pretty unremarkable and probably one of my least favorite Sanji fights. It's really short and there's never really any back and forth and of course... There's always the unnecessarily like perviness of it all, which is dumb. But uh, yeah, it's it. It's fine. You know, it's it serves its purpose. But during all this, these episodes are laced with small cutaways to Luffy trying to get past Moria's kagekage powers, and he does manage to kind about smart Moria a bit by attacking him in really unorthodox ways, like Luffy always manages to do. We even saw the return of Gom Gom no Ami or Gom Gom no Net. For the first time since I believe he used it on Crocodile in round one of their fight in the desert. Which was really fun for me to see. I don't know why. I just like seeing old moves come back after a while. But now that we've got the lamest fight of the arc out of the way right away. We can get to the good stuff. And next up is Perona versus Usopp. And this is probably my favorite fight in the entire arc. Perona, while being scared and running away, all of a sudden breaks breaks out some new powers with her devil fruit as she's seen flying around like a ghost now. So she can turn in herself into a ghost, which seems kind of unlikely because that would make her more of a Logia fruit user, as we see later, as most of us kind of deduce that this is probably like a ghost clone or some kind of a projection. And it's not her physical form herself that's actually turned herself into a ghost. One of my favorite running jokes between these two has got to be that even though they're enemies and Perona is a villain, she seems to have genuine sympathy and pity for Usopp's absolute negativity. And especially where she starts to threaten him and starts by saying the cliche, I have one thing to say to you. And instead of actually threatening Usopp, she pulls a complete 180 and gives him a thumbs up while encouraging him that there are plenty of good things still in life, which which he gets annoyed again at the unnecessary pity that he's receiving. And it's also here we get a quick explanation as to how the Kabuto Pachinko works, which I know we got a very quick explanation of it at NES Lobby, but it's nice to see that a more detailed explanation as how the dials are powering the uh, Kabuto Slingshot. Perona quickly shows that it makes sense why they are a good pairing in terms of fights as they both employ a lot of tricks and mind games on each other since physically they're both pretty weak. Perona's devil fruit is pretty cool though as she does have a way to still attack while she's still in her ghost form. The ghost wrap attack can generate a ghost that can explode although I don't really understand how that works or why that's related to ghosts or hollows. But yeah, anyways, that combined with how she can psychologically mess with you and makes you kind of understand why she can be a pretty scary opponent. Usopp is overwhelmed by Perona and Kumashi, and this creates another amazing character moment for Usopp, building off of his growth from Aeneas Lobby, where he finally realizes his worth to the crew and learning that there are things he can do that others can't. And here was this perfect opportunity where he where there was an actual opponent that he could stand up to that no one else could, but it turns out yet again that he's too weak and he's going to fail his crew, which of course was his biggest insecurity that led to him leaving the crew back on Water 7. Usopp greatly disappointed in himself that he still doesn't have the confidence or the fortitude to stand up against these crazy opponents that they keep coming up against, 
and eventually falls back into sort of his despair, crying out for help in his mind. And as you as the reader slash viewer think he's calling out to one of his nakama to save him, but nope. It was another huge shocker of a twist that Oda masterfully pulls off as Usopp dons his Soge King mask and the Soge King theme song starts to blare. And I'll be honest, I thought we were done with Soge King after Enya's lobby. I thought that this was something Usopp created to save face so that he could fight alongside his crew without dealing with the embarrassment of leaving the crew. But here we learn it serves another very important purpose. It gives Usopp strength, particularly mental strength. And I can't tell you how much I love this moment. Like, we follow up the amazing character moments and growth from Water 7 to now this. And then Usopp just keeps surprising you and gets even gets even better. It's interesting how even in his mind, he treats Soga King as a completely different persona and even has a conversation a la Gollum style from Lord of the Rings, although it's much more constructive, <laughs> I would say. Now, I don't believe that Usopp has some sort of like a DID situation here, but this is something that I myself and I'm willing to bet many people can relate with when faced with a tough or stressful situation is you kind of like talk it out with yourself in a conversation in your head to try and reason with yourself. And I believe that that's what's happening here as Usopp is trying to calm himself and reason his way to a solution as well as to calm himself down in general. And I have to say, watching Usopp here is something I relate to so much because I do this exact thing, well, maybe not put on a mask and create a whole nother persona, but the part where, you know, in a stressful or difficult situation, the way I calm myself and try to come up with a rational solution is to sit there and kind of have a back and forth conversation with myself playing devil's advocate, as well as to try and to look at things from other perspectives. I don't really know how it works, but just that ability to sort of be a different version of yourself and take yourself out of the situation and view things from a, from a way that you personally not normally think about it, but allow yourself to think about things from perspectives that may seem kind of stupid or unfeasible, impractical, or even impossible, just to see why they are those things, but then continue to argue with yourself why they might or might not work. And it often yields some interesting solutions because you just try and think of different, you know, opportunities or different ways of looking at things. And it allows you to step outside of what you think you should do. And you start to be able to think more outside the box. And it's a it's a handy tool, I must say, at least for me. I, I know it's not for everybody, but I definitely employ this quite often. But more importantly, though, it gives your mind a chance to slow things down and approach things one at a time so they don't overwhelm you. And it allows your mind to be distracted a bit from the scariness or the stressful nature of whatever crisis you're in. And again, you can kind of start to see why I've always liked Usopp so much because he's basically me and most likely he's us. I've mentioned it many times on this podcast that Usopp is easily the most relatable because he is the closest thing to us. Even his backstory is very simple and vague that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to it, like having a parent run out on you or losing a parent to an illness. It's not something so out of this world as, say, a merman pirate crew invading your home or having the government commit genocide against your country. You know, many of us haven't thankfully experienced that level of trauma, but we can all relate to Usopp's backstory. And yeah, I think it's done intentionally 
to make Usopp sort of the everyman that we can all relate to. And I also have a theory that this is the very reason why Usopp also gets so much hate and so vehemently because they see themselves in Usopp so much and some people see that see the negative, you know, less desirable qualities in Usopp and don't want to be reminded of our own embarrassing and annoying flaws. And so they kind of reject Usopp and obviously gravitate towards the cooler characters like everyone else. But that's not what Usopp is. Like, he is the personification of growth through adversity. I mean, yeah, the, everyone on the crew is gone, It goes through adversity and grows. But I think Usopp is defined by that almost. And yeah... To me, personally, he always finds a way to persevere despite how little natural talent and skill he has, but still strives to get better and grow. And even when the negative thoughts get the better of him and he gets scared and runs or gives up, Usopp eventually, with some time, dusts himself off, gets back up, and faces his fears head-on, even if it's the most haphazard and cobbled-together way possible. Which there is a lot to be, you know, impressed about in that regard. There is something truly inspiring to me in that. It's easy to keep moving forward when you have the confidence and positivity or of Luffy or the genius and cunning of Nami or even the raw strength and skills of Zoro. But when you've got less than optimal resources to work with, you can still push, a- push ahead and do what you can to still help those people and be a positive force in people's lives. And that's something to be proud of, I think. Usopp represents that so well to me and why he'll always still be one of my favorite Straw Hats. Even though, you know, I'm still a sucker for the cool characters. Obviously, I have the the monster trio above him. But I still think Usopp is a great character. But unfortunately, we're going to have to wait till the next podcast to talk about the conclusion of this battle. But trust me, it's an awesome conclusion for sure. So yeah, we'll end it there. But if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast for updates as well as watch me stream uh, via Twitch for um, if you just wanted to come and hang out at uh, twitch.tv slash sunny underscore underscore go. And as always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. Just a really minor spoiler section, like one item uh, to discuss. But if you're not interested in that, stay safe out there and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye. Alrighty, so spoiler section. Really, it's just one little minor thing that I wanted to talk about, and that is regarding the Skeskenomi and Sanji. And it's interesting here that we learn that Sanji is, well, at least when he was growing up, was obsessed with trying to become invisible via the Skeske fruit. But it's interesting how it would have follows up on this and kind of wraps this sort of perviness and invisible storyline all the way in Wano, when he finally gets the raid suit from his father back on Whole Cake Island, and he decides to use it. And obviously during the raid, he attempts to use the invisibility powers of the raid suit, but then eventually rejects it. And yeah, I do like that that he rejects the idea of using it, but <laughs> it still doesn't take away from the creepiness and perviness of the whole situation but you know we'll get into this a little bit more when we get to the Wano arc you know a long time from now but 
Yeah, I do like that it was kind of addressed later on, even though it took like 600 plus episodes to get there. But anyways, that's really all I wanted to mention. So yeah, that's it. And I hope to see you on the next episode. See ya.